It seems to me travelers who love art, of course, love Michelangelo, and all of them are just sharing stories they picked up after reading The Agony and the Ecstasy. Great book. But uh, I think there's a lot more to Michelangelo than The Agony and the Ecstasy, and we're going to learn about that now. We're joined by Professor William Wallace. And uh, William Wallace is a professor of art history at Washington University in St. Louis. He's written five or six books on Michelangelo. His latest is called Michelangelo, The Artist, The Man, and His Times. Professor Wallace, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm an I'm a enthusiast for Michelangelo. You know, the agony and the ecstasy just made everything so vivid and so real and so human. Uh, you're going at it a little more scholarly approach. What are, do you have any frustrations about people who know Michelangelo through the agony and the ecstasy? None whatsoever. It's the first book I read on Michelangelo. It's what took me to Italy. It excited me about Michelangelo the first time I was in Italy. And I reread The Agony and the Ecstasy before writing a biography of Michelangelo just to see how good a book it was. Uh, maybe the main difference is that, of course, Irving Stone was writing a novel. So right. certain parts of it are made up. Um, I'm purporting to write a biography, which purports to have true things in it. And you're a, you're a college professor, and I'm a tour guide. So I can. I be, don't think they're so far away <laughs> from one another. I, I, I like to. Take I would it. rather be more tour guide, and you should, you'll be more professorial. Okay, well let's let's change hats here and I'll ask a few questions. There's a myth and there's a reality when it comes to people's understanding, popular understanding of Michelangelo. I've got an image of him, uh, you know, slaving away in the Sistine Chapel, this vast room on scaffolding he constructed himself because being a Renaissance man, nobody else could uh, design it until that time. And he was laying up there doing one patch at a time because it's working on wet plaster and you can just do as much as you can do in a day. And he got a stiff neck from that. Uh, what was the reality? Well, um, not so far off. It's just that nobody can undertake doing a project of that scale and magnitude by himself. And really, that is the image we have from the agony and the ecstasy, that he basically couldn't get along with assistance and didn't have very many friends and couldn't tolerate any kind of help whatsoever. But the truth is he had 13 people in the chapel helping him to construct that scaffold and to prepare the plaster every single day, to trim brushes, to mix up paints, to haul water, lots of water from the floor all the way up to the top of that ceiling. Uh, now, he did dismiss a few of them as well. Um, but, but it was a coordinated team. And it was a coordinated was team. Was he the manager? And he would be the manager. So he had to run a business, 13 he, men. He was, and he was a very successful manager of men. And he went on from the Sistine to actually construct architectural projects, which are always multiple large groups of individuals. And he was, in fact, a very successful manager of talent. I understand when he got the commission to design St. Peter's Basilica, the Dome, he said on the condition that you will give me an army of workers so I can get as much of it completed in my lifetime as possible. That's right. And he inherited a workforce that has was working under somebody else before him, and he did want to place certain of his own particular chosen individuals into positions of importance. Here's another sort of psychological angle on Michelangelo, the artist, the man, and his times. I understand he got in a fight when he was younger and somebody broke his nose, and he was always... Um, a little shy or uh, disappointed in his personal ugliness, which inspired him to create more beauty. It's a famous story. It's un undoubtedly true. But the further story that's very interesting is the kid that broke Michelangelo's nose was supposedly exiled from Florence. Well, I've never heard of anybody being exiled over a 13-year-old fight. Um, but it is true that Michelangelo was disfigured early in his life, and the idea that maybe he was compensating all of his life is <laughs> probably not impossible. Driven to create beauty. But I, I would like to think there's probably a more profound reason than just for his own self-satisfaction that he's really creating for God. 
that's an interesting point because I like to think of humanism as something that's not exclusive from Christianity or somebody who has a faith. Humanism, to me, is not bowing down in church all day long in, in a superstitious kind of way, but recognizing the talents God gives you and thinking it's almost a responsibility to use them constructively. Does that fit Michelangelo's sort of ideal of humanism? I think that's a very nice way of putting it. It's most important to emphasize exactly how religious Michelangelo was all of his life. There was no question whatsoever about his deeply profound Christianity. So when he does a well-worn topic like a Pieta or a crucifix or a Last Supper, he's not just checking that off. He he's meditates on it and talks with theologians and his priest or whatever and tries to get a particular angle on it to make a theological point? I think this is probably why these figures can still move us 500 years later, that they still have relevance to us. Um, Yes, he's very profoundly thinking about the stories of Christianity, especially when he's painting the Sistine ceiling. So when you're a Renaissance thinker and a Renaissance artist and you see a medieval Pieta, Pieta by definition is Mary with Jesus' dead body taken off the cross, and you see a a Pieta, uh, the Christ's body is about as heavy as a papier-mâché model, not very realistic. Michelangelo would be disturbed by that because as a person who's really driven to get reality into his art, he would want to show the dead weight of a crucified Christ. As, in fact, he does in that early Pietà that's in St. Peter's. It's a very full-size human being that weighs a lot and has the dead weight on Mary's lap. So Mary's holding not only her son, but her dead son who died for your sins. That's the theological point. Profoundly moving. And Michelangelo uses reality tricks to show the weight of Jesus' dead body. Indeed, you can actually see him sort of slumping into her lap and the, the drapery being pressed by the body as his dead weight sinks towards the grave. I can envision Mary's fingers kind of digging into Jesus' side because his body is so heavy. On one side, yes. On the other side, her hand is open and presenting Christ to us for our meditation. Oh, now explain this to me because I'm a Protestant and I don't quite get the importance of Mary. And, I'm a Protestant too. <laughs> but but, but, but a, a priest or a, a nun or a monk or a, a person who uh, understands this takes you on a tour of St. Peter's and the culmination of the tour is the Pieta. And the idea here is... Jesus is gone. Mary's holding him. And when Jesus, before he died, he, he, he kind of said, I'm going and Mary, you're going to be here with John and take care of the flock or something like that. Mary accepts that. And here she is with his body looking down at worshipers. And I think, unfortunately, we can't get close enough to the Pieta to look up at it like Michelangelo intended, right? Mm, not quite. You? Yeah, because really he carved that as a tomb memorial. So it really should sit down low on the floor. And Mary's face is actually tilted significantly downward because she's meditating on his body and looking looking towards the grave Ah. in front of the Pieta. It has now been put very high up on an altar. What we're really supposed to look at is the body of Christ, which is why Michelangelo polishes it so beautifully. And the last bit of light that falls from above will fall on his body as if to illuminate and give him a certain amount of life, even in death. See, now, to understand all of that makes the experience of going there much more powerful. And we're not, neither of us are Catholic. So the very fact that this artist can still move us is really quite remarkable. And I learned that 10, 15 years ago, leave your Protestant sword at the door when you go inside (laughs) and accept it on its terms and celebrate it. It's an incredible triumph for an artist to come out of the Middle Ages and be in the Renaissance and to be able to incorporate this new ability to get reality to make that theological point. Indeed. In fact, one of the most difficult things in taking students on tours is oftentimes they're sort of 
strangely unmoved by relics, which are so significant and important to the Catholic faith, but very, very far removed from our own reality. There's so many dimensions that you can get into in your travels, and and to to be able to take yourself back and understand the art in its context and the artist in that time really enlivens the experience. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Professor William Wallace. He's written several books on Michelangelo. His latest is Michelangelo, the Artist, the Man, and His Times. And we're talking about myths and reality, about this image of the most, probably the most popular artist of all time, the most written about artist of all time. Indeed, one of the longest lived and the best documented artists before the 19th century. We know more about Michelangelo than any other artist until almost modern now, times. part of that is because in the Renaissance, artists were well-known and celebrated individuals, whereas in the Middle Ages, they were anonymous craftspeople. And Michelangelo did more than any other artist to help raise the stature of a profession, which was largely a manual profession and a rather lowly one until Michelangelo came along. Well, would that have been annoying to his patrons? It was very annoying to his father, who certainly didn't want him to be an artist. We can give him more credit for raising the stature of the artistic profession than any other artist subsequently. So Michelangelo has this classic case where you got the son that's going to be a musician or an artist exactly. or a painter or something. No, his dad exactly goes, right. come on, man, I gave you an education. Be Ex- a banker. Exactly right. His father was a banker, a landowner, and in the cloth trade, which was very respected in Florence. But being an artist was a rather lowly profession. Well, well Michelangelo, as a 13-year-old, was invited into the Medici's Palace. I mean, that'd be like being invited into the White House if you were just a street musician. You know what I like to say, Rick, is that two years in the Medici household was better than a four-year college education at Harvard. Okay, I have this image that every Tuesday night, the Medicis would get together all these uh, guys who were into Plato and pre-Christian thinking, which was kind of dicey at the time, and get together and and celebrate this radical, revolutionary, renaissance humanism, pre-Christian thinking. And I think we need to remember how much education comes verbally in the Renaissance Ah. especially. People didn't read books. A few books were read over and over again, known very well, and then shared out loud. So Michelangelo could have been a a natural phenom as far as being able to sculpt, but without that Renaissance foundation, that that philosophy and theology and everything he picked up in the aristocratic realm of the Medici, in that formative age from 13 to 15... You could make a case we might not be talking about him today. Precisely right. And it's not because he's reading a lot of Latin. It's because he's around the smartest people of his age. He hung out with two Medici guys who became popes. So better watch out when you're 13 and 15. (laughs) You never know which one of your friends is going to be elected pope. That's exactly right. So he was employed for an exceptionally long time by very powerful individuals. Now, I have an image of him that he sort of just was a little reckless personally. I, like he, he didn't have great hygiene and probably not great uh, records of his banking and everything. And that he died, uh, like a lot of artists, poor and uh, uh, less appreciated than you might think. But apparently that's not correct according to your book. It's a very 19th century romantic idea that artists die for their art. But in the Renaissance, if you were a good artist, you were paid well. And Michelangelo was a, really a multimillionaire by the time he died. Now, he... He invested all of his money in land, which until about, you know, a few months ago was really a very wise investment in the world and certainly was in the Renaissance Florence. It was the safest and, and most ah, guaranteed So he investment. was well paid and he took his money and put it into land. Into land. That's more responsible than a lot of rock stars in our generation. Exactly right. No, yeah. he was very concerned about the propagation of his family. So land was the guarantee of making sure that his legacy was passed along. He was very concerned about leaving something to help his family be well set up when he was gone. That's right. Did he drive a hard bargain for what he'd be paid? Absolutely. No, I mean, money was always an issue and uh, sort of complicated. This is one place I almost blame him for the Reformation because when they were fixing up Rome, the Pope 
essentially hired all the Florentine artists to go down to Rome, and the Pope needed to make a lot of money, so he sent those guys up to Germany, telling them, if you can contribute a little extra, we'll get you on the, on the fast train to heaven. Indeed, St. Peter's was probably the reason why you invent indulgences, to pay for this gigantic building that Michelangelo was the architect of. Tetzel was raising money. That's right, that's right. To pay for Michelangelo, because <laughs> he had to go up to Carrara and get that marble. <laughs> but it's a little unfair to blame the Reformation <laughs> on Michelangelo. He lived through three very interesting times. You know, When he grows up young, it's a unified world of one religion. Then he watches the Reformation take place, and then all of a sudden he also lives through the counter-reformation where the Catholic Church in a sense fights back and Michelangelo is very important in all three of them. Well, psychoanalyze that for me for just a moment because most of us know the Sistine Chapel and on the ceiling you got the creation and it's glorious and Adam is created from the spark of life like we've seen in the bottom of swimming pools almost with the same stature as God. I mean, Adam is quite impressive. And then much, much later, a whole different age, Michelangelo is hired to come back and do the last judgment on the wall. And this is after the Catholic army of Spain has looted Rome, right? I mean, the, right. the Catholic Church right. is no longer Catholic in a universal sense. And now we have the Counter-Reformation. Exactly and right. And a vindictive Christ coming down with his fist raised. Well, I'm not so sure he's vindictive, Rick. We should look very, very closely at Christ's face because it's, in fact, a very forgiving one. But you're absolutely right that 25 years later, an artist is coming back and, in a sense, editing his own work okay, so and giving got, us a whole different dimension. You got that positive high Renaissance humanism in the ceiling. Exactly. And then 25 years later, psychoanalyze The Last Judgment. Well, I would actually say that it's another form of positivism in The Last Judgment. It's just a reaffirmation of a different kind of positive. Oh, positivism. Catholic. Like, if you don't say the rosary, you're going yes, to hell. Yes, exactly. That's true. You call true. that positive? Well, yes. We have to be, you know, an assertion of Catholic faith here. So you got people <laughs> going to hell and you got people popping out of their and uh, you know exactly which side you're going to be on. Uh, except for Michelangelo. Well, he was, that's he was, right. Isn't that a story? He was dangling from a rosary His, there? His uh, supposed self-portrait is dangling <laughs> from the in the skin of St. Bartholomew, who and might Bartholomew. actually drop it accidentally into hell. Or you could interpret it that Michelangelo, because he did the proper uh, routines, uh, would be saved, even though he w- wasn't deserving of it. I think he was largely making art precisely to deserve his place in heaven. Oh, you think this Michelangelo his... was—that was his— his Not only that, everything he did in the last 30 years of his life was a part of his salvation. Wow. He was concerned for the salvation of his soul more than anything else. I suppose it must have been fun for you to delve into all of this because there's a lot of written material from the age. Michelangelo wrote a lot of letters himself. Tremendous amount of documentary material. We have 500 letters of Michelangelo, many of which, all of which have been translated into English. But we also have 900 letters written to Michelangelo, and almost none of them have been translated. So what we're doing is realizing a much richer view of Michelangelo in his, in his context, his social world. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Professor William Wallace, uh, author of several books on Michelangelo. His latest is Michelangelo, The Artist, The Man, and His Times. William, when you think about a Renaissance artist, and Michelangelo is sort of the quintessential Renaissance artist, by definition that is broad, not just a painter or not just a sculptor, but wouldn't he be expected to do a lot of things? He was a painter. He was a sculptor. He was an architect. He was a very significant poet, and he was certainly the greatest engineer of the Renaissance. We always think of Leonardo as an engineer, but Leonardo just thought about it. Michelangelo actually did it. Now, in Michelangelo's heart of heart, did he figure one of those professions was the most noble? Probably sculpture, but towards the end of his life, he became ever more wedded to poetry, and poetry became a way to sort of seek his salvation. 
if I psychoanalyze Leonardo and Michelangelo, I feel they're two great Renaissance artists with a fundamentally different approach to things. Leonardo was more the proud humanist that could create from nothing, painting on a blank canvas and creating something incredibly beautiful. Michelangelo would say, you know, Leonardo, that's pretty impressive, but it's much more noble for you to be a tool of God and to take marble and to recognize what's in there and chip away the excess and reveal the beauty that God made. That, that makes me a tool of God. That's kind of a Christian humanism. It's a very nice way of saying it, Rick. Um, But Leonardo was a generation older than Michelangelo and so actually served as a kind of role model on how to become a gentleman artist, a kind of great creator, a great humanist artist. Ah. So even though they didn't like... I think absolutely. Because Michelangelo Michelangelo wouldn't admit it. Michelangelo was like the opposite of a gentleman artist. He'd be sweaty pit with a little candle on his beanie to chip at night if he was so inspired. Until late in life when he evermore fashioned himself as an aristocrat. I love it in your book, William, when you talk about how the Sistine Chapel, the Pieta, David, Moses, St. Peter's, they still have the power to move us 500 years after they were made. And then you quote the words of Johannes Goethe, the great German philosopher, saying, until you've seen the Sistine Chapel, you can have no adequate idea of what humankind is capable of achieving. It's a very moving quote and very, very true even today. And as a traveler, when we go to Rome and we look at the Sistine Chapel, we can appreciate the power and the courage and the dedication of Michelangelo to bringing us into the modern age. I've never known anybody, even though it's replicated over and over again, who isn't moved by the experience of actually seeing it in person. Professor William Wallace, author of Michelangelo, The Artist, The Man, and His Times, thank you for giving us an insight to, I think you could say, the greatest artist that ever walked well, I would the agree face with that. of Western civilization. Thank you very much, Rick. You're welcome. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Italy and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Italy's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Italian adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.